Welcome to the Book of Mormon, a masterclass. This podcast is designed to help you come closer to Jesus Christ by seriously studying the Book of Mormon. This was originally designed as a video course. To see the visuals for this episode, please visit johnhiltonii.com slash the Book of Mormon. Many years ago, I found myself in a rut with my scripture study. It had become kind of boring and I was discouraged about it. So I called a trusted friend, explained my situation and asked her for some advice. To my surprise, she said, well, John, that's just how scripture study is. Sometimes scripture study is just boring. I was so disappointed. I was sure that my friend would give me some magical solutions to improve my scripture study. And as time went on, I actually found some of my own solutions for getting in a rut of scripture study. I learned that my friend wasn't actually quite right. Scripture study does not have to be boring. In fact, what I've realized is, at least in my own life, when I find myself getting a little bored in scripture study, it's usually because I need to mix things up a little bit. I need to try some different study techniques. One of my overarching goals for this class is for you to improve your serious study of the Book of Mormon by learning different ways and approaches for scripture study. For example, consider this quote from Elder Richard G. Scott. He said, as you seek spiritual knowledge, search for principles. Carefully separate them from the detail used to explain them. Principles are concentrated truth packaged for application to a wide variety of circumstances. A true principle makes decisions clear, even under the most confusing and compelling circumstances. On the course website, I have a list of different scripture study techniques. One of my favorites is searching for principles in the scriptures. Let's practice this as we go into 1 Nephi chapter 6. In 1 Nephi chapter 6, verses 5 and 6, we read, The things which are pleasing unto the world I do not write, but the things which are pleasing unto God and unto those who are not of the world. Wherefore, I shall give commandment unto my seed, that they shall not occupy these plates with things which are not of worth unto the children of men. For me, one thing that's really helpful in finding principles is to do what Elder Scott said, to separate out the principle from the detail. So if I were to try to read between the lines here, I might find a principle of, I should focus on pleasing God more than pleasing the world. Or I could focus on a later part of this verse. They shall not occupy these plates with the things which are not of worth. How do I liken that to my life? What's the relevance for me? I'm not actually keeping a record full of plates. But again, if I separate out the detail from the principle, I could identify a principle like I should only fill my time with things that are worthwhile. So think about these two principles. Once I've got these principles, now it's really easy for me to start applying them, thinking about them in my life. I can think of experiences that I've had or stories I've heard. For example, these principles remind me of the story of a man who made a trap for a monkey by putting some melon seeds into a little hole. And when the monkey reached in to grab them, he couldn't get his hand out because he wouldn't let go of the seeds. And it makes me wonder, are there things in my life that I need to let go of so I can focus on the things that are most important? If we were to go back and look at 1 Nephi chapter 6, verses 3 and 4, Nephi says, I desire the room on the plates that I may write the things of God. For the fullness of mine intent is to persuade people to come unto the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and be saved. In other words, Nephi is putting a priority on Jesus Christ. Again, I can turn this into a principle that's applicable in my own life. 
I will prioritize my opportunities to draw closer to Christ over other good things. We could do the same kind of practice with 1 Nephi chapter 9. It's really fun to find principles from the scriptures. One little detail I'll point out while we're in 1 Nephi chapter 9 is that Nephi tells us about the plates he makes. As soon as Nephi arrives in the promised land, he makes plates, and he tells us that he called those plates the plates of Nephi. And then he says, these plates, meaning the small plates that we're reading right now, also are called the plates of Nephi. We probably could wish that Nephi might have had a little more creativity in his naming of the plates, but keep your eye on these two different sets of plates, the large plates and the small plates. As we talked about in a previous class, Nephi had written a large account of his travels through the wilderness on the large plates, and then the Lord told him to create these small plates. Nephi says, the Lord has commanded me to make these plates for a wise purpose in him, which purpose I know not. And as we talked about in our previous class, this was because of Martin Harris and losing the last 116 pages. As I was thinking about this this morning, it made me realize that perhaps sometimes there's reasons why God doesn't tell us why he does things. Imagine if Nephi had said, Lord, why are you making me make these small plates? And the Lord said, well, you know, about 2000 years in the future, some guy's going to lose everything you've worked on for the past 30 years. And Nephi's like, what? You know, it's just kind of a, a little reminder. I, I'm sure Nephi wouldn't have gotten mad, but a little reminder that maybe sometimes in our lives, there's a reason why God doesn't tell us why. Well, let's turn in the storyline to 1 Nephi chapter 7. Here we see that Lehi tells his sons to go back to Jerusalem one more time and to bring Ishmael and his family with him. We might wonder, why Ishmael? Why his family? What's the connection there? Elder Erastus Snow reported Joseph Smith as saying, Ishmael was of the lineage of Ephraim, and his sons married into Lehi's family, and Lehi's sons married Ishmael's daughters. Assuming that Elder Snow is correct in his recollection, that means that Ishmael's sons are Nephi's brothers-in-law. So as they talk to Ishmael and his family, they say, okay, great, we'll all come with you. As they're returning back to Lehi's tent, there's a conflict. Laman Lemuel, some of Ishmael's family members, want to go back. So Nephi says, all right, if you want to go back, go back. And this really ticks off Laman and Lemuel. So they tie up Nephi and they are going to leave him in the wilderness to be devoured by wild beasts. I love pondering Nephi's prayer in 1 Nephi chapter 7, verse 17. He said, O Lord, according to my faith, which is in thee, wilt thou deliver me from the hands of my brethren? Yea, even give me strength that I may burst these bands with which I am bound. Many years ago, Elder David A. Bednar gave a talk where he described how he pictured this scene. He said, I personally do not believe that the bands with which Nephi was bound just magically fell from his hands and wrists. Rather, I suspect that he was blessed with both persistence and personal strength beyond his natural capacity, that he then, in the strength of the Lord, worked and twisted and tugged on the cords and ultimately and literally was enabled to break the bands. When Elder Bednar gave this talk, he kind of put his wrists up like this and made a just a rubbing motion with the wrists. This reminds us that oftentimes in our lives, what we need to do is not pray for our problems to go away, but to pray for the strength to work through them. There's a pattern in the Book of Mormon of prophets praying for strength. We'll see more about this pattern, as well as the strengthening aspect of the Savior's atonement in future classes. 
To me, another powerful lesson from this episode is what Nephi does afterwards. Once Nephi breaks the bands and his brothers apologize, I think I'd be tempted to have a verse like, and behold, it came to pass, I, Nephi, made them grovel for a little bit before I finally forgave them. But instead we read Nephi saying, I did frankly forgive them for all that they had done. What a powerful reminder for you and me to extend forgiveness. As we turn to 1 Nephi chapter 8, I'm reminded that recently I talked with an art historian who told me that 1 Nephi chapter 8 is the most frequently depicted chapter in art of any chapter in the Book of Mormon. If you go to the course website, I've linked to the Book of Mormon art catalog. This is an amazing place where you can see so many pictures relative to the Book of Mormon. As you can see on the screen, there's some beautiful images of Lehi's vision of the Tree of Life. There's dozens of pieces like this that you can find at the Book of Mormon art catalog that I've linked to on the course website. As we go into 1 Nephi chapter 8, Lehi is describing a vision or a dream that he has. And I think it's interesting that at the very beginning of the vision, he says, I saw a dark and dreary wilderness. I saw a man and he was dressed in a white robe. He came and stood before me and bade me follow him. So you would think that as Lehi is following this person, that things are going to get better. But actually, they get worse. Lehi says, as I followed him, I beheld myself that I was in a dark and dreary waste. And after I had traveled for the space of many hours in darkness, I began to pray unto the Lord that he would have mercy on me. So we might ask ourselves, what happened to the man that's dressed in white? I don't know all the details, but to me, this is just a little reminder that sometimes even when we're doing the right things, when we're trying to be on the right path, there's still going to be difficulties and challenges. But as Lehi prayed, his eyes were opened. He said, I beheld a tree whose fruit was desirable to make one happy. I did go forth and partake of the fruit thereof, and I beheld that it was most sweet above all that I had ever before tasted. Now, before we press forward, I want to mention another scripture study technique that I find to be really helpful if I ever need to mix things up in my scripture study, and it's to do scripture translation. This could take on lots of different forms. It could be writing a passage of scripture, just rewriting it in your own language. Or sometimes it's reading the Book of Mormon in a language other than the one that is your primary language. For example, as I've read the Book of Mormon in Spanish and Chinese, I found that different things often pop out at me. When I was living in Mexico and I heard a person read this verse in a talk, they said, and please pardon my poor Spanish accent, les hice señas y también les dije, in vos alta que venían hacia mí. Now that phrase vos alta means like a loud voice. And the speaker really emphasized this saying, as we're sharing the gospel with others, we need to be bold. We need to speak with a loud voice. And I thought to myself, nah, that, that's actually not what the text said. So I turned to 1 Nephi chapter 8, verse 15. And sure enough, it says with a loud voice. I had just never noticed that phrase before, but hearing it in Spanish caused that to pop out to me. And actually, as I was preparing for this class, I noticed another phrase, les hice señas. Now, my Spanish isn't the best, but I thought this sounds something like making signs or gestures at them. I don't remember reading anything about that in 1 Nephi chapter 8, verse 15. Sure enough, though, when I went to the actual verse, it talks about Lehi beckoning to his family. And if we were to go to the 1828 dictionary, which is the dictionary contemporary when Joseph Smith is translating the Book of Mormon, we see that the word beckon means to make a significant sign to. 
So in other words, as I was reading in a different translation, all of a sudden some new things popped out at me. I saw Lehi speaking with a loud voice, gesturing, beckoning, saying, please come, come here. And it kind of gave me an intensity, a new level of thinking about to what extent am I really working to share the gospel with others? There are many elements to Lehi's vision, and you've probably spent some time studying the different symbolisms. Here's just a few examples. The tree represents the love of God manifested in Jesus Christ. The fruit we can see is the blessings of Christ's atonement, eternal life. The rod of iron is the word of God. The great and spacious building is the pride and vain imaginations of the world, and the mists of darkness are the temptations of the devil. In Lehi's vision, he's going to see four distinct groups. And it's interesting to think about these groups in terms of some of these different symbols. For example, this first group wants to make it to the tree, but gets lost. There's no mention of the rod of iron. The mists of darkness come. They stumble and lose their way. The second group is different. It's able to make it to the tree. Those who are in the second group cling to the rod of iron and eventually get to taste the fruit. The third group presses forward with steadfastness, makes it to the tree. And then the fourth group, they actually never even try to get to the tree. They just head straight to the great and spacious building. So two of the groups, the first and the fourth, never make it to the tree. I think what's interesting is to look at the differences between groups two and three, because those in group two eventually will fall away, while those who are in group three don't. What's the difference between these two groups? One might be in how they treat the rod of iron. Speaking of those in group two, we read, They came forth and caught hold of the end of the rod of iron and did press forward through the mists of darkness, clinging to the rod of iron. Compare that with the group that stayed. We read that they did press their way forward, continually holding fast to the rod of iron. Now, if we just look at those phrases, we see that the group that winds up leaving was clinging to the rod of iron, whereas the group that stayed was continually holding fast. That might be an important difference. If we were to, again, look up in the 1828 dictionary, we find out that the word cling was actually defined as holding fast. So maybe what's different is continually holding fast, clinging versus continually on a regular basis, holding fast, digging deep into the word of God. One time I asked a group of people what they felt the difference was between clinging to the word of God versus continually holding fast. And as everyone submitted a word or two, we created a word cloud. I thought it was interesting that the biggest word, in other words, the word that people mentioned the most was intentional. Are we really being intentional, thoughtful? about our efforts to continually hold fast to the rod of iron. In 1 Nephi chapter 15, Nephi will tell us that the rod of iron symbolizes the word of God, and whoso would hearken unto the word of God and would hold fast unto it, they would never perish. Neither could the temptations and the fiery darts of the adversary overpower them unto blindness to lead them away to destruction. There are powerful blessings that come from continually holding fast to the scriptures. But that's not the only difference between the two groups. Notice that the second group, when they came, it says that they partook of the fruit. Whereas the third group, when they came, they fell down and partook of the fruit. 
I think that phraseology fell down may be significant. Consider this scriptural pattern. Later in 1 Nephi chapter 11, Nephi will say, I beheld the Son of God going forth among the children of men, and I saw many fall down at his feet and worship him. In Matthew chapter 2, shortly after the birth of Christ, we read that the wise men came, fell down, and worshiped him. In Revelation chapter 5, we learn about 24 elders who fell down and worshiped him. In 3 Nephi chapter 11, as Jesus Christ visits the people, they did fall down at the feet of Jesus and did worship him. And even in our day, the Lord has commanded, you shall fall down and worship the Father in my name. Think about these consistent invitations to fall down and worship Jesus Christ. That kind of made me think about how today we sometimes hear people are falling away from Jesus. And as I thought about that phrase, I realized it's hard to fall away from Jesus when you're falling at his feet. This is a key difference between these two groups. The one that stayed at the tree was able to fall at Jesus's feet and worship him. You and I can do the same thing in our lives. Take a moment to reflect. In your life today, what does it mean to fall down at the Savior's feet and worship him? Now, there's still another difference between these two groups. And to introduce it, I want to highlight another scripture study technique. Hopefully you're seeing there are so many different scripture study techniques. Our scripture study never needs to become boring. This is one of my favorites. It's using the scripture citation index. You can use this via the website scriptures.byu.edu, or there's an app for this with Android and Apple phones. You can just download it wherever you get your apps. I'll show you some images of what it looks like on the website. So the purpose of this tool is to help you identify every time a verse has been used in general conference. And you can learn from how church leaders have used these different verses. Here on the home screen, you can see how often different books of scripture have been quoted in general conference. Probably many of us are surprised to see that the New Testament has been quoted almost twice as frequently as the Book of Mormon. As a side note, there's some interesting things you can do with the citation index. So for example, we could filter our results looking just at Elder Quentin L. Cook and see which passages of scripture he has most frequently quoted. This is kind of a, a just a fun little thing to do. But getting back to the main purpose of the scripture citation index, this is going to help us see, for example, in 1 Nephi chapter 8, which passages of scripture have been most frequently quoted. And I was surprised to see that the most frequently quoted verse from 1 Nephi chapter 8 in general conference is 1 Nephi chapter 8, verse 28. It says, after they had tasted of the fruit, they were ashamed because of those that were scoffing at them, and they fell away into forbidden paths and were lost. Not the most encouraging of all verses, but there's an important message for us. And so if you were to click in on verse 28, that's where you can see all of the different places where church leaders have quoted this verse in general conference. One of those is from Elder Neil L. Anderson. He said, as disciples of Christ, we stand apart from the world. There may be times we feel uncomfortable as the fingers of scorn mock and dismiss what is sacred to us. This is another key difference between groups two and three. Those in the second group, when they were mocked and scoffed at, they were ashamed and fell away. Whereas those who stayed at the tree paid no attention to those who were scoffing at them. 
Elder Boyd K. Packer taught, one word in this dream or vision should have special meaning to young Latter-day Saints. The word is after. It was after the people had found the tree that they became ashamed, and because of the mockery of the world, they fell away. At your baptism and confirmation, you took hold of the iron rod, but you are never safe. It is after you have partaken of that fruit that your test will come. So to recap, three key differences between those who tasted of the fruit and stayed at the tree and those who fell away. Those who stayed were continually holding fast. They fell down and partook of the fruit, and they did not pay attention to those who were mocking them. How can we do those same things in our lives? Now, there's another challenge. Imagine that I were to see you on the street and I came up to you and I said, hey, kind of looks like you've been spending time in the great and spacious building. That would be a little bit offensive, right? But the challenge that each of us faces, almost all of us are spending time in the great and spacious building, even if we don't want to. Notice what Elder Boyd K. Packer taught. Largely because of television and the internet, instead of looking over into that spacious building, we are in effect living inside of it. That's your fate in this generation. You are living in that great and spacious building. Even though the great and spacious building is all around us, we can choose to stay at the tree, to fall down and feast on the fruit. The tree represents Jesus Christ and the fruit is his atonement. As we focus on the Savior, we don't have to worry about all the things that are swirling around us. Now, as we jump forward to 1 Nephi chapter 10, let me ask you a couple of questions about your favorite chapters in the Book of Mormon. Which chapter do you like better? 1 Nephi chapter 8 or 1 Nephi chapter 10? How about 2 Nephi 2 or 1 Nephi 20? 2 Nephi 9 or 2 Nephi 21? 3 Nephi 11 or 3 Nephi 20? My guess is all of us love 1 Nephi 8, 2 Nephi 2, 2 Nephi 9, 3 Nephi 11. Some of these other chapters, we might not even be aware of what they're about. We're like, oh, what's that chapter? I want to use this to highlight a distinction between some different types of chapters in the Book of Mormon. 1 Nephi 8 is an example of a chapter about personal salvation. It's you, me. Will we make it to the tree? Will we stay? Whereas 1 Nephi chapter 10 and some of these other chapters are highlighted are about what we might call salvation of nations or salvation history. It's about whole groups of people, Jews, Gentiles, the members of the house of Israel. Will they be saved or not? In 1 Nephi chapter 10, we see Lehi teaching about the salvation of nations. Nephi tells us, My father spake much concerning the Gentiles and also concerning the house of Israel, that they should be compared like unto an olive tree whose branches should be broken off and scattered upon the face of the earth. And after the house of Israel should be scattered, they should be gathered together again. After the Gentiles had received the fullness of the gospel, the natural branches of the olive tree should be grafted in or come to the knowledge of the true Messiah. Note that the gathering and scattering of Israel is still focused on Jesus Christ, but for many of us, it's a little bit harder to understand. We like to read about faith, repentance, baptism, the gift of the Holy Ghost, our personal salvation. But once we start talking about Israel, the gathering, the scattering, it can be a little trickier. And we can see how this is true because Laman and Lemuel also have questions. They said to Nephi, we cannot understand the words our father spoke concerning the natural branches of the olive tree. 
and also concerning the Gentiles. Don't worry, Nephi's got the solution. Nephi says, I did rehearse unto them the words of Isaiah. Some of us are probably thinking, oh no. So the answer to the question is in Isaiah, that means I'll never be able to figure it out. It is true that Isaiah focuses a lot on the salvation of nations. And don't worry, in a few class periods, we're going to be diving deep into Isaiah's words. They're not that hard to understand. This takes us to a final scripture study technique that I want to highlight today. And that's looking at what scholars have written about specific subjects. There's no doubt that some passages of scripture are harder to understand than others. So we can study what scholars have written about a passage of scripture that might seem a little unclear to us. Personally, I've gained a lot from learning from Heather Hardy in her writings about the difference between salvation of nations versus personal salvation. She points out that in the Book of Mormon, you've got writers like Nephi and Jacob who emphasize both personal salvation and the salvation of nations. But as time goes on and we get to prophets like King Benjamin, Abinadi, Alma the Younger, and others, the focus really is on personal salvation. But then Heather Hardy points out something interesting. When Jesus Christ comes and visits the people in 3 Nephi, he heavily emphasizes the salvation of peoples or the salvation of nations. Heather Hardy writes, Salvation history is never thereafter far from the Nephite record keepers' minds as they recognize and direct their own writings as a vehicle of both salvation and judgment to Jews, Gentiles, and Lehites of the latter days. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. Heather Hardy's article looks really interesting. I wish I could read all of it. Wish granted. I've linked to this article and other resources on the course website. I get it though. Salvation of nations, it's just not as easy to apply to our own lives as topics relating to personal salvation. But as I've pondered the salvation of nations, I've realized it really is relevant to me. For example, a person could read through his or her patriarchal blessing, specifically looking for insights that connect to the salvation of nations. Or we could think about going to church this Sunday. Sometimes we think about church attendance with kind of a me attitude, a personal salvation attitude. What am I going to get out of church this Sunday? But what if I viewed going to sacrament meeting with the lens of the salvation of nations? For example, I could think to myself, I am part of a covenant that's been in place for thousands of years to gather Israel. And a portion of Israel is gathering together this morning at sacrament meeting. So I'm going to go be a part of it. And not only am I going to go, I'm going to bring someone with me. And I'm going to work hard to make sure that everyone who's there feels connected with Jesus Christ and draws closer to him. In the chapters we've read today, we've seen both personal salvation and the salvation of nations. Both are important. Both are emphasized by Jesus Christ. As we reflect on how we can abide by the precepts and act on the things that we've learned, I hope that there's several possibilities that come to your mind. I hope that you've learned a few new scripture study techniques that you can practice and apply in your own personal scripture study so that scripture study never is boring. I hope that we'll think about gathering Israel and what our role in that is. And most importantly, I hope that we'll ponder how we can fall down at Christ's feet and worship him. Thank you for listening today. We hope you'll rate this podcast and leave a review. It really helps others discover it. This course is more than a podcast. There are several additional elements, including readings, PowerPoints, and other learning resources. These are all freely available at johnhiltoniii.com slash the Book of Mormon. 
We hope to see you there.